Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the Emergency Medicine Residents and Faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Pediatric Emergency Medicine Morsels Rebaked. Delicious educational treats of pediatric emergency medicine that will satisfy your curious mind. Welcome, everyone, to this new series from the EM Guidewire team. In this series, Dr. Potter and myself, Dr. Richardson, will explore the interesting and sometimes scary realm of pediatric emergency medicine. As many of you know, we have access to a very large library of educational tidbits, morsels if you would, from the PEM Morsels website and weekly posts. However, sometimes it's difficult to recall all of them, and it's nice to revisit them from time to time. Well, in this series, we will strive to rebake those pediatric EM morsels because if they were delicious the first time, the second time around will be even better. Today, we will be discussing the super exciting pediatric chest pain. And to make things even more exciting, we're going to be discussing non-infectious and non-traumatic pulmonary causes of pediatric chest pain. While this complaint is one we hear often, it can be very scary for parents to hear. And there are some serious causes we need to consider, including pneumothorax, pulmonary embolism, and pleural effusion. Now let's get on with the show. When we think about pneumothorax and pneumomediastinum, the first thing that comes to mind is trauma which is by far the most common cause. But here we'll discuss some of what I think is the scarier etiologies, spontaneous pneumothorax. I definitely agree. Spontaneous pneumothorax is definitely more frightening because as the name implies, it's spontaneous and occurs without any obvious preceding history. But surely there are some important historical features we can rely on, right? Well, it's usually correct. While primary spontaneous pneumothorax occurs in the absence of known underlying lung conditions, there seems to be a subset of familial primary spontaneous pneumothorax, so family history is important. Secondary spontaneous pneumothorax occurs as a consequence of underlying lung pathology, such as in cases of asthma, cystic fibrosis, emphysema, connective tissue disorders such as Marfan's, Ellis-Danlos, or lupus, and other things like infection, malignancies, and airway foreign bodies or congenital malformations. We see the spontaneous pneumothorax most commonly in our male teenagers, ages 10 to 17, most of these kids will present with an acute onset of chest pain with or without shortness of breath. Interestingly, these kids often present in a delayed fashion with symptoms that have occurred over the past one to three days. But I mean, this is something that will easily be detected with physical exam, right? These kids are going to come in short of breath, difficulty breathing, one lung down. Well, unfortunately, no. While a physical exam may be abnormal with decreased breath sounds or asymmetric chest rise, in the majority of cases, Especially those with a small pneumothorax and in smaller children, there may be no identifiable physical exam abnormalities. So then how am I supposed to make my diagnosis if I can't use my physical exam? The upright chest x-ray is the most common method to diagnose the pneumothorax, and the lateral decubitus film can be used to increase the sensitivity of that x-ray. CT is also discussed as a method for imaging, and while that does increase sensitivity, I don't think the increased sensitivity outweighs the radiation risk in most cases. That being said, CT may be warranted in the workup of the patient with a known pneumothorax after the case-by-case -case discussion with a surgeon in order to investigate for secondary etiologies such as lung masses and to risk stratify for recurrence. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You want me to irradiate these little kiddos with a chest x-ray? I've always been taught that radiation is something you avoid at all costs in the kids. There has to be another way. Well, actually there is. Everyone's favorite pediatric imaging modality, the ultrasound. 
Ultrasound has a 92% sensitivity and 98% specificity for detecting pneumothorax with evaluation for lung sliding. However, this is operator dependent, Nikki. In the right hands, ultrasound can be used to detect consolidation of pneumonia and the fluid of pleural effusions. Dr. Tyle would be so proud of you, Jenny. Okay, so it sounds like not every child who presents to the ED with chest pain needs imaging, but if the story is concerning, your threshold for imaging should be lower in those who have a history of asthma, tobacco abuse, a family history of spontaneous pneumothorax, or in children older than 10 years old. That's correct, but if your child does require imaging and it's in your clinical practice, ultrasound is a great way to start and has essentially the same sensitivity as the erect chest x-ray and has several advantages, including the lack of radiation. And per Dr. Tyel, it should be in your clinical practice. <laughs> It's true. Once you've identified a pneumothorax with your imaging modality of choice, next comes the management decision. Many children can be managed without intervention, especially those with small pneumothoraces and minimal symptoms. But for those with a larger pneumothorax or concerning symptoms, the lung will need to be re-expanded. This can be performed in a variety of ways, with simple needle aspiration, a pigtail catheter, or a larger caliber chest tube. Don't just go putting garden hoses in all these little kids. We recommend considering the most minimally invasive approach first and, as always, ensure proper anesthesia and analgesia prior to the procedure. If suction is used, we recommend no more than negative 10 to negative 20 centimeters of water or even just water seal at first. Great. So we've identified a pneumothorax with bedside ultrasound and re-expanded the lung with a pigtail catheter. We're out of the woods, right? We deserve a pat on the back for another small life save. Not so fast. Let's say all of that's true. You successfully re-expanded the lung with a pigtail catheter, and in the midst of your celebration, the nurse calls you to the room because the kid has become more tachypnic and dyspnic. What are your thoughts now? Okay, so I just re-expanded the lung, and now the kid's respiratory status is worsening. Okay, I know this one. It's re-expansion pulmonary edema. Correct. While re-expansion pulmonary edema is uncommon, it can occur after expansion of a collapsed lung, such as in the setting of the treatment of a pneumothorax or pleural effusion. Re-expansion pulmonary edema can be asymptomatic, so it requires vigilance and close observation of the child who just underwent pulmonary re-expansion. The child may present with tachypnea, worsening dyspnea, and a cough productive of frothy pink sputum, but it may also be identified only on repeat imaging. But who's at greatest risk for re-expansion pulmonary edema, Nikki? Unfortunately, there's no clear evidence to attribute any specific risk factors for the development of re-expansion pulmonary edema in children. But there is an association with younger children, use of higher suction pressures, chronically collapsed lungs, and larger sized pneumothoraces or pleural effusions. Speaking of pleural effusions, can these be the cause of pediatric chest pain as well? That's correct. While we think about pleural effusions more commonly as a cause of shortness of breath, remember that fluid can also be irritating to the diaphragm and pleural surfaces, which can cause pain. A pleural effusion is fluid accumulation in the pleural space. This can occur at any age, not just in adults with heart failure and it occurs when the rate of fluid accumulation is greater than the rate of fluid absorption. These rates are influenced by many factors, including fluid hydrostatic and oncotic pressures, lymphatic pressure, and regional inflammation. The clinical presentation of pleural effusion depends on the size of the effusion and associated medical conditions that led to the pleural effusion in the first place. There are many conditions which affect these factors and can cause pleural effusion, but by far the most commonly identified cause is infection resulting in a paraneumonic effusion which accounts for about 78% of effusions. Tuberculosis is another important infectious cause of pleural effusions and may be a more common cause depending on the prevalence of this disease in your area. Other important causes to consider are malignant effusions, which can cause about 4% of cases, congenital heart diseases, which cause another 1% of cases, and chylothorax, which accounts for less than 1% of cases. 
When a pleural effusion is suspected, just like your adult patients, get a chest x-ray first. This may show fluid in the fissures, blunting of the costophrenic angles, mass effect, or meniscus formation. That being said, in your kiddos, ultrasound is also a very viable method for identification of pleural fluid because they don't have all that extra mass. And there's the benefit of being able to be quickly performed at the bedside. Here we have ultrasound popping up as a viable alternative to traditional imaging again. I think I'm detecting a theme here. Okay, so once the pleural fluid is identified, a decision has to be made whether or not it needs to be treated. And if it does, what the best treatment method is. That's correct. Many small, asymptomatic pleural effusions may resolve with treatment of the underlying condition. If a central line is in place, it should be removed as it may be causing obstruction. Medical management may include specialty nutrition with high medium-chain triglyceride content to decrease intestinal lymph production and decrease the flow through the thoracic duct. Octreotide may also reduce the need for surgical intervention. If intervention is required, small bore catheters are generally favored as these are better tolerated with less complication risk and have been proven to be as effective as large bore tubes. Smaller caliber pigtail catheters, however, are more easily kinked and can become occluded and obstructed by viscous or turbid fluid. If the fluid is expected to be viscous, a smaller caliber thoracostomy tube can be considered, but pigtail catheters may suffice in these situations as well. And if the decision is made to remove the fluid, it is important to send samples of pleural fluid for pH, cell count, gram stain and culture, protein, glucose, LDH, and triglycerides. That's correct, just like in your adults. While LIGHTS criteria have not been validated in children, they're often used to help classify pleural fluid. These studies can help us differentiate between transudative and exudative processes. While exudative effusions tend to have a cloudy appearance with elevated protein, and an LDH of greater than two-thirds the upper limit of normal for serum LDH with a high specific gravity, transudative effusions tend to have a clear appearance and lower specific gravity, LDH, and protein. Another rare but serious diagnosis to consider in the pulmonary etiologies of pediatric chest pain is the pulmonary embolism. Okay, no. Pulmonary embolism is something that occurs in adults. This is not something I have to be thinking about kids, is it? You'd be surprised, Nikki. All right. While this condition is rare, occurring in approximately 0.9 per 100,000 children per year, rates of venous thromboembolism have increased over the past two decades, which is likely multifactorial. Consideration and detection of the condition has likely increased, but so has the use of intravascular devices, increasing the risk of development of thromboembolism. While this condition is rare, the consequences can be devastating, with mortality up to 20% with the first diagnosis and up to 30% with recurrence. All right, but this is something we see all the time. I mean, I'm pretty well-versed in using PERC and WELLS. We have such great risk stratification tools, we can just use those, right? Unfortunately, no. Neither PERC, WELLS criteria, nor the D-dimer have been validated in children. In fact, in one study by AGHA, when PERC was applied retrospectively in children, 84% of pulmonary embolism would have been missed. All right, so then how do we identify these children who are at risk for pulmonary embolism and require further investigation? So first, it's important to remember that pulmonary embolism in children has a bimodal distribution, peaking at ages 0 to 1 and then again at ages 15 to 17. Certain children are also at higher risk, including those with a history of obesity, cancer, congenital heart disease, prothrombotic states including protein C and S deficiency, antiphospholipid syndrome, nephrotic syndrome, lupus, and those with current OCP use or central venous catheters. So lots of children to be thinking about pulmonary embolism. So while this condition is rare, the risks of a missed diagnosis are high. 
Therefore, it's important to consider pulmonary embolism in the evaluation of pediatric chest pain and shortness of breath, to actively look for red flag symptoms, and to consider further imaging, especially in those high-risk individuals like we talked about above. Exactly. Thanks for such a great discussion today. In summary, there are many different causes to be considered in the evaluation of pediatric chest pain. The important non-infectious pulmonary causes to consider include pneumothorax, pulmonary embolism, and pleural effusions. As with all pediatric conditions, vigilance is key in order to rule out these conditions. Workup starts with a focused history and physical exam and usually includes imaging, which may include a chest x-ray or a CT scan. When considering imaging, ultrasound should also be thought of as one of the first imaging modalities as it can be used to evaluate for some of the more serious causes, including pneumothorax and pleural effusion. Ultrasound involves no radiation and can be quickly performed at the bedside and has been shown to have equal, if not better, sensitivity and specificity than plain films for the evaluation of pneumothorax in the hands of a skilled operator. Thank you again for joining us for the PEDS EM Morsels Rebaked. Please join us next time. This is EM Guidewire brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out.